Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a great Sunday. Adorable once again, everybody. Welcome to Crossroads. If you're new, that's been our tag for this sermon series because it's the blessing that God told Aaron, the high priest, to give his people, and they recited it every day. Every time they came together, they said, this is the Lord's desire. He's going to bless you and keep you. His face is going to shine upon you, and he's going to give you peace. We're in Numbers 20 today, and if there's ever a day they needed to remember this blessing, it's the passage we're about to be in. But before we get there, some family business to take care of. At CBC, we are an elder-led church, which means there's a board of people that kind of manage the theological framework and the vision and the direction of Crossroads. And every once in a while, people roll on and off that board because it's healthy for that to happen. And over the past couple months, we've been talking to John Zetsman about joining the board. If you don't know John, he has been at CBC for a long time. He was in previous iterations of leadership, the chairman of the deacon board, and about three or four months ago, we approached him and asked him if he'd be interested joining the elder board, and he didn't say no. And so we took that as an opportunity to tell him this is God's will. And we had several conversations with him. And so the way this works at CBC is he's decided he would like to join as an elder board. We've met several times and think it'd be a good fit, and we've prayed about it. And so now we throw his name up to the whole body. And we say we have a 30-day window for you guys to let us know if you see any failings or character flaws that we might not have seen that would limit his ability to serve in leadership at Crossroads. So what this is, it's not like, hey, one time in junior high, I heard. That's not what we're doing here, all right? There's some passages in Timothy and Titus, and they talk about the qualifications of service of an elder. And so if you know of anything that you want to bring to our attention, you can email us at elders at crossroadsbible.org. And then after that 30-day window, he will join the board. All right? So just for you guys. We're going to, before we get into our text, pray a bit like we do. We live in a very critical, very consumer-led culture. And this place, this space, is not that. This space is where God meets with us. This space is where we're reminded that we're supposed to live differently. And so we come and we prepare our hearts And we set aside the criticalness of the outside world, and we ask one simple question this morning, where is God speaking, and where is God leading me today? And so we're just going to take a minute and pray, pray for our text, you're going to pray for me a little bit, I'm going to ask that you pray that the Spirit might lead and guide you this morning as God is meeting with us through his word, that we might be contributors to the conversation of faith today, not critics. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here that we can come together and worship and sing about the hope we have in Jesus and sing about life, not death, because Jesus is alive. I'm thankful that we can gather with others that believe in Jesus and give one another hope. As we open your scripture today, Spirit, I pray that you lead us and guide us. You edify us and encourage us in our text. 
if you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and say a quiet prayer to yourself that the Holy Spirit might lead and guide you this morning. I also ask that you say a prayer just for me, that God might use my preparation to further show us his goodness and faithfulness in our text today. God, you're good. May we see your goodness today as we open to Numbers 20. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Numbers 20 today. I remember specifically the moment, time, and place when I got called into ministry. And if you talk to people that don't follow Jesus and you tell them that I wasn't just thinking about being a pastor because I wanted more attention as a middle child, I feel called into ministry. Sometimes they look at you like they don't understand. Like I, I literally heard God say, Charlie, I want you to be a pastor. It wasn't a bad burrito. This is 30 years later. You know, I remember where I was. I remember where I was in that moment, and then I kind of lived a little bit, and I wasn't the typical youth group all-star kid that's going to be your pastor. I went to Bible college, and people literally took odds on how long I'd make it before they kicked me out. My parents were the most generous with a year. (laughs) I got out of Bible college and didn't want to work at a church for a while, drove trucks, and found my way to Crossroads. Same thing. The odds weren't in my favor that I'd be here for a very long time. And that goes into one thing. I am terrified of failure. I'm terrified of not, not, just, not just failing, not being good at my job. I'm terrified of letting people down or making a mistake that disqualifies me from leadership. I'm terrified of it. One thing that sticks in my head in college, every Tuesday we had a president's chapel, and the president of Moody would come up and speak, and the president at the time was a guy named Dr. Michael Easley. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a pastor in Dallas for about a dozen years and a pastor in Virginia for a dozen years, and he said, and it stuck out with me, and I can remember nothing else this man told me over a year. <laughs> He said, in my Bible, I have a list of names of the people I went to seminary with that are no longer in ministry. Stuck out with me. There's a study that came out last year from a couple different organizations, and it says one out of every 10 people in ministry retire in ministry. Failure happens. Today is about failure. Today is about failure. I've seen it, and I've, I've lived with it, and I've worked through it, but failure hits churches all the time. It's a reality that we live in and we have to process through as people. I'm listening to a podcast right now by Christianity Today. It's very good. If you're a mature believer, I'd listen to it. If not, it's going to probably make you mad at the church. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And there's a church in Seattle that blew up overnight and then imploded overnight called Mars Hill. And it just talks about the idea of, of leadership failing and what that looks like. It takes a gracious approach at what happened when this church fell and when the leader fell and, and, and kind of the outworkings of all of that. A couple months ago, one of the bigger churches in Dallas, their senior pastor resigned and left. Leadership happens in ministry, but you know what? I don't have to give examples of other churches at Crossroads. I can rip the Band-Aid right off. About 15 years ago, my friend Ian Cook got on the stage, stood right there and said, hey, Crossroads community, I have some bad news. Your pastor had an affair and he's no longer your pastor anymore. Failure happens in leadership. It's hard. It's really hard. Today in Numbers 20, we look at a time when Moses failed. But, but, but beyond that, 
whether you run a church or whether you lead a group or whether you lead Israel through four decades of wanderings in the wilderness. Today is about those, those painful and powerful moments when our humanity catches up with us and we don't live into our calling as followers of Jesus. Today is about failure and what God does in those moments and what we do in those moments. That's Numbers chapter 20. If you've got a Bible, open up and let's get going. Let's find some context before we get to the actual thing that happened. It says in verse 1, Then the entire community of Israel entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died and was buried there. So just to catch us up, we've been in Numbers all summer long, and there's two major moves in Numbers. The first 10 chapters deal with getting ready to leave. The next 10 deal with kind of this wanderings through the plains, and then there's another wandering at the end. So, so let's just get on the same page real quick. The first bit was in Exodus 12 to 19. They leave Egypt and they go to Sinai. It took a few weeks to get there. And then from there, in Numbers 11 to 12, they go from Sinai to Kadesh. This is where you have the spies that enter the land. He says, go and look at it. They come back and they said, they're bigger, faster, stronger. Let's run away. And God says, okay, if you want to wander, you will wander. And then for the next 38 years, give or take, you have Kadesh to Kadesh. They wander around in the middle of the wilderness. And here's the frustrating part. They end back in the same place they started almost 40 years before that. And that's where we hit right here, right now today. And then next week, we'll get into Kadesh to Transjordan. They they just come back to this place where they didn't trust God so many years ago with a new group of people and a new generation. And it says... The entire community of Israel entered the wilderness of Zin in the first month. The people stayed in Kadesh. And then this next sentence is huge for Moses. Miriam died and was buried there. If you haven't been tracking with us, Miriam is Moses' sister. We did a a study a few weeks ago when Miriam kind of opposed Moses' leadership and came out against Moses. And like any family, there are fights. But for the most part, you got to understand how this probably hit Moses. She was his sister. You know, the story of Moses started because essentially he was a Hebrew kid in Egypt and the Pharaoh was afraid that the Egyptians were going to become too powerful. And so he made this mandate in Exodus 2 that all kids under two die. Miriam was Moses' older sister and she saved his life. Miriam was the one that floated him in the Nile to the daughter of Pharaoh, a wife of Pharaoh, and said, hey, here you go, here's a baby. And the wife kept it. Miriam was the one when Pharaoh's uh, wife found Moses and said, hey, you're going to need somebody to feed that kid. I have somebody. Turns out it was his mom, you know. Miriam was the one all along from when Moses was born to this moment that tried to protect and look out for and care for her little brother. Sure, they had a couple of fights along the way, but you can't divorce that from the fact that they were family. I love what David Frost says about family. Having a child makes you a parent. Having two makes you a referee, right? (laughs) Sorry, that's just my stage of life. There's Pope John Paul said this about family. He said the family is the first essential cell of human society. No matter where you come from or where you're going to, your family knows you better than anybody else because there's very few people that see from the same perspective we see from. Miriam died after they'd been wandering for 38 years. And this is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat relationships. It doesn't make Moses a superhero that didn't have conflict. It doesn't make Miriam perfect either. I love what the Puritan Richard Baxter says. He said, when we study the Bible and look at relationships, so often we see wine and vinegar in the same cup. This idea that this is family for all it is, for the goods and the bads. And sure, they had some problems and they had some fights, but Miriam died 
Moses' sister died. It's a big moment for Moses because very few people understood what he was going through. Very few people were in leadership. Very few people were there at the very beginning. And very few people fought for him to live. This was Miriam. And so they travel for 38 years and Miriam dies. And the next sentence in our text is not, and the community of God that was around Moses rallied around him, encouraged him, made him brownies and cookies and said, what can we do for you? It says in the next verse, there was no water for the community and they gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron. The people contended with Moses saying, if we had only died when our brothers died before the Lord, why have you brought up the Lord's community into this wilderness so that we and our cattle should die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt only to bring us to this dreadful place? So Moses' sister died and he's probably in some pain. And everybody else in the community says, why are you doing what you're doing? We are not happy. That word contended with there, it's literally used in the Bible to form a legal complaint or a lawsuit. It's, it's far more than just they had a bad morning and they were looking to take it out on somebody. Do you guys, have you heard the phrase gunny sacking before? Gunny sacking is a psychological term that starts fights. It, it's literally when you, and this is where it comes from, you have these small complaints. And over time, you don't say anything. You just put them in a sack. One by one, by one, by one, by one. And then all of a sudden, one day, you see a sock on the floor and you want to file for divorce. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, one day, all these little things you haven't said speak up for you in this one moment that really is not indicative of the moment itself, but everything else. In our text here, it never actually says these guys are thirsty. It just says there's no water. That's it. There's no water. And then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And they file a legal, a formal complaint against Moses. But they go farther than that if you look at verse 5. They say, why have you brought us as Egypt only to bring us to this dreadful place. That word in the Hebrew, dreadful place, is literally evil place. To ascribe evil to the place where God has brought you is really dangerous. So they go to Moses, who just lost his sister, and they say, why have you brought us to this evil place? What is wrong with you as a leader? Moses is having a pretty bad day, probably a bad week, probably a bad month. I'm guessing the last four decades hasn't been his best life, and he didn't get any compassion from the people around him. And so when the people of God complain, this is what happens every time in the wanderings, verse 6. Moses and Aaron went out from the presence of the assembly to the Lord's entrance of the tent of meeting. Then they threw themselves down on their faces to the ground. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, take the staff and assemble the community, you and Aaron and your brother, and speak them and speak to, uh, and then speak to the rock before their eyes. It will pour forth water. And you'll bring water out of the rock for them, so you will give the community and their beasts water to drink. And look, this is God's response to a complaining people. This is God's response to a people that he's fed and led every day for 40 years. This is God's response to a people that was enslaved and now is not enslaved anymore. A generation ago, they were the most beat down people on the planet. And now they're their own people about to have their own land being taken care of by their own God. This is the people that say it's not good enough. And God in that moment doesn't get mad. He gives mercy. In that moment, he doesn't judge them. He says, hey, go speak to the rock. I'll give them some water. 
time and time again in the scriptures and in numbers especially, you have an ungrateful people and their ungratefulness more often than not is met with mercy and not judgment or wrath. He says, just go and speak to the rock and I will let it spew forth water. God is being merciful because God is merciful. And he says to Moses, go and show them I am merciful. That's why in the Exodus, when he he says to the people, this is who I am. He says, I am loving and compassionate. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness for my people. That means it happens again and again and again in times when we shouldn't, wouldn't, and can't explain it. It's this whole idea that, that you know, grace is not fair. And I'm glad for that because I need grace, not fairness. So God says, I'm going to continue to show my mercy. The people cry out to God and they say, this isn't good enough. You're not good enough. And God says, speak to the rock. I'll give them what they need so that they won't be mad right now. It's an incredible act of mercy. M- Moses doesn't like it. <laughs> There's a quote by Tim Keller that I always remember in talking about prayer. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, that we would answer our prayers the same way God does if we knew the things that God knows. Moses doesn't know the thing that God knows, and Moses is not very happy with how God answers this. And so he does keep reading. He says, In our text, so Moses took the staff from before the Lord, just as he commanded him, verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the community together in front of the rock, and he said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? So Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. God says, take your staff, go speak to the rock. Moses takes his staff, yells at his people, and hits the rock. There's a difference there. Moses is frustrated. And when you think about it, I I don't blame him. Like we just said, his sister just died. The people kept coming and complaining and complaining and complaining. I I can only think of it like my three-year-old when she starts complaining and complaining and complaining and all of a sudden you just flip and say, stop, and you yell. And you feel bad about it, but you just can't help yourself because she's well-fed, she's not gonna starve, she got chicken nuggets instead of a hamburger, the world's gonna end, you know? Moses just flips. But, But here's the deal. I think you gotta look at this in the context of where they're at. It's been 38 years wandering. And one complaint's one thing, but four decades of complaint is an entirely different animal. It's way more weighty. I lived in Chicago for seven-ish years, and one thing that people always ask me from Texas if they haven't been there is, how do you deal with the cold? I, I remember how cold it was the first uh, winter I was there. I remember the first moment when it had been kind of chilly, like in the 30s, and now it's shorts weather for me in Chicago. It was kind of chilly, and the next morning I woke up and the sun was out. I got so excited. I was 18, born and raised in Texas. The Texas sun has one job, and it does it every time. It warms the planet. That's how God designed it in God's land. And the sun was shining. It is late November. I put on some shorts, and I said, this is going to be such a good day. I walk outside, and it's 30-something degrees. And I remember screaming on my college campus, what the heck? The sun is broken. And everybody looked at me like, what's this guy's problem? I went back inside and didn't leave the rest of the day. But people ask me, how is the cold in Chicago? And I said, it's bad. I said, but you know, there's a couple days under zero degrees every year. The wind chills even worse. But you know what makes the cold and the winters harsh in Chicago? It is not the two weeks a year that was what it was in February here. It is not the February months when you walk to the grocery store and it's a wind chill of negative two. It's when you get snow in June that kills your soul, you know? Went to a Cubs game one June and it started flurrying. And I was like, what is wrong with this is hell? I couldn't believe it. That's what kills your soul. It's not the depth, but the breadth. That's what kills our souls. 
It's not the depth of the darkness. It's how long we have to endure it. This has been 38 years of people complaining and Moses leading. This has been 38 years and Moses finally, simply snaps. God said after the people rejected him in, um, in Numbers 14, he said, you're going to wander and this generation is going to die. So not only did Miriam die, and not only is he tired, and not only are people complaining, not just for a year, but for decades, people kept dying. The, the whole chapter before this, chapter 19, is called the Red Heifer Ritual, if you want to read it. And, and the whole point of that chapter is to teach Israel what to do around death, because a generation of people died. And let's just put some perspective on that real quick. Most scholars estimate between three and five million Jews came out of Egypt, men, women, and children. A generation died. If you take a conservative estimate of three million people and say that's how many died, if you times 40 years by 365 days, divide that by three million, you're losing like 205 people a day, every day. That's on average. Some days are worse than others. They were surrounded by death. Let me tell you something. If you're surrounded by death all the time, that doesn't put you in a great mood. Moses is on thin ice here. He's simply burned out. And here's something that we know that is still true. When you're burned out, you make bad decisions. You know? So all these things come together. It's why I think the writer said at the very beginning of this chapter, his sister died. It's not the first time we've seen Moses get here. Think about Exodus 2 when he killed the Egyptian soldier frustrated and stressed and didn't know how to deal with his people and help his people. And so he sees an Egyptian soldier beating a Hebrew guy, and he just kills a soldier out of emotion because he's at a place that he's about to be broken. And then he ran. After 40 years, he, you know, he, he, he watched sheep in the desert. And so Moses is at a place where he's burnt out and he didn't listen to God. And so he goes and he hits this rock. And then in verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to show me as holy before the Israelites, Therefore, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. I'll tell you what. I remember the first time I got taught this passage. I was somewhere in high school. I remember my first thought was, this is not fair. He's been so good for so long. Give this guy a little slack, you know? I remember thinking, he messes up once, like one time, and you're taking away the prop. This is not, he has been your guy for a long time, God. How can you be this harsh with Moses in this predicament? Why can't you show him a little grace like he showed all the people of Israel for all this time of the wandering? But here's the deal. If you actually look at what he did, it's a little harsher than just, he hit a rock when he was supposed to speak to it. If you go back to the verses above, says, listen, you rebels, in verse 10 and 11, he says, listen, you rebels. Moses does two things here that he wasn't supposed to do. See, God said his response to the people's complaining was mercy, not judgment, was grace, not wrath, was love, not condemnment. And, and, and Moses said that's not a good enough answer. He goes up before his people, and instead of showing the love and mercy of God, he looks at his people, and he says, listen, you rebels. And he starts judging them for what they did. God said, I'm not going to. Moses said, I'm going to for you, God. It's always a sticky situation when you decide to judge people God hasn't judged. And so he gets up in front of his people and he says, you rebels. There's a pastor named Gordon McDonald. And he was a big deal in the mid-80s. He ran InterVarsity Fellowship, was the president of it. He pastored a church for a dozen years in Massachusetts. And in 1987, 88, I think, he had an affair as a pastor, he had to step down. And since then, his life has 
one that tells the story of redemption. <laughs> he said, I'm sorry, and he went through some, some different courses of action to make amends for what he did, and, and he confessed his sin, and, and now he's a writer and an author and a pastor and a speaker. He wrote a really great book called Reordering Your Private World. It's fantastic. And he wrote on what it looks like before you fall. And he said, if you get to a place where you start condemning the people you're called to love, that's a dangerous place to be. This is what Moses was. He was at a place where he's called to love these people, but instead of loving, the only thing he could see when he looked at them was judgment. So God says, go and show them that I'm loving and I care for them. He goes and says, listen, you rebels, this was the man that was supposed to speak for God. It's that moment that I talked about when you flip out on your kids and you realize that's not the person that I want them to see. <laughs> it's when my wife, my wife looks at me and says, was that really needed? And I want to say, yes, no, it wasn't needed at all. <laughs> you know, it's that moment when you don't show the love you want to show to the people you're called to love. And you know you're wrong. But not only was he judge, if you keep reading, it says, shall we, him and, and Aaron, bring water from the rock? He didn't just act as their judge, he acted as their deliverer. He took credit for God's work. It's always a dangerous thing to do. There's a rabbi that did some study on this text. His name's Jacob Milgram, and essentially what he did was said, he compared this text to a bunch of other ancient Near Eastern, the cultures around them backdrop from Egypt and the Mesopotamia region. And he said, this action was tantamount to that of an idolatrous pagan magician. And he said, quote, here in a direct address to his people, Moses ascribes miraculous powers to himself and Aaron. Indeed, by broadcasting um, the we shall bring forth word, he and Aaron might be interpreted as having put themselves forth as God. So it's bigger and deeper than just he hit a rock he was supposed to speak to. Because this is a new generation of people that God rose up. This is a new generation of people that needed to meet a God of compassion and love. This is a new generation of people that God wanted to show his mercy to because that's who God is. And instead, Moses shows them harshness, condemnation, and judgment. Really, what Moses did here was he didn't show the people the kind of God they follow in the first place, and God's not happy with that. So it's way bigger and deeper than just hitting a rock that he's supposed to speak to. He was judge, jury, and deliverer, and that's God's role. That's God's role. And so God gets him back in the tent and says, I, I can't stand for this. And this is one of the beautiful and hard things about following Jesus, is that in this moment, he's going to be held accountable for what he did, but at the same time, it doesn't define who he is. Because in Deuteronomy 3, it's a retelling of kind of numbers a bit in the law. In Deuteronomy 3, they get to the place of the promised land, and, and Moses says to God, please, please let me in. In 24 and 25, he says, please let me go into the promised land. And God says, no. In our text, it says in verse 12 that he didn't trust God, so essentially what he's doing there is saying that I don't trust God to be God enough for me. It's the same sin that kept out the generation of people that marched into the land that God promised them and said, no, these guys are too big. God's not God enough for me. Moses, when he heard the directive from God, said, this is not the way we're going to respond. I'm going to do it my way because it's what they need. It's always a dangerous place to be. And so in this moment, what we see is that no man, even Moses, is bigger than God's law. No man. And that's comforting. 
God doesn't give special favoritism towards people because they're special in love with Jesus or they work at a church or they're on a platform. God's standard of good is God's standard of good regardless of who you are, where you are, what you're doing for God. And I need that because that's comforting for me. But here's the backside of that. It's just like nobody's above God's law, neither is anybody too sinful or too wicked or too far gone to be beyond his grace. And we need to hold both those things in tension together. Both those things need to be realities that we live into and live out in a world full of fallen people, pastors and not pastors alike. So God says to Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. And here's what I want to get to this morning. What do we learn from in the middle of failures? There's a beautiful text. Because I could go the whole Baptisty route and say his sin kept him out of his promise. You know, I've heard it taught like that before. I just don't like that. Because I don't think that's telling the right story about God. I think even though Moses hit this rock, even though Moses became judge and jury, even though Moses went against the command of God, look at what it says in the middle of the text. It says that he hit the rock and then it said, and water spewed forth and fed them and their cattle. It's this beautiful picture of God still showing up when people fail God. So when, when I look at this idea of failure in the church and failures in our lives and failures all around us, what I see is, is not necessarily a story of condemnation. I see a story of God working in and through the failures of his people. I think one of the first things that we see is that our failures don't stop God from being God. The Marcel podcast that I mentioned, it tells the story of a church that failed. But the whole time what it does is it says, but here's the crazy part, God worked through it to bring thousands of people into a growing relationship with him. I think when we look at failure in the church and when we look at failure in life, we have to first realize that our failures don't stop God from being God. Broken churches still help people see a perfect God. I can't explain that all the time, but I know that I need that. Sometimes on our worst days, people see the best God behind him. So, about a month ago, I had a meeting with a guy, um, non-church related. I didn't know him from church. He has a business in the community. And we get to a meeting and talking about some stuff. And I tell him, he says, what do I do? I said, I'm a pastor. He said, really? A youth pastor? I said, no, I'm a pastor. And <laughs> you get that a lot lately. Um, they're not real pastors. Sorry, Nick. You know what I mean. Anyway, so he said, where? And I said, uh, Crossroads Bible Church. He just goes, oh. Okay, so we keep talking, and a couple minutes later, he says, hey, can I, can I tell you a story? I was like, oh, sure, right? And he said, uh, about 20 years ago, I had an affair. And I said, oh. At that point, a couple things happen when you say you're a pastor to people. Either one, they just decide that they don't like you because they've had bad experiences, or two, they decide they're going to get really personal with you because you're a pastor. Both are okay. And he says, about 20 years ago, I had an affair. And I said, all right, I'm sorry, man. He said, yep. Uh, we got to doing some of the business stuff. This guy was a little like me, just ADHD. And so we're bouncing around, and he comes back to it. And he said, you know, I don't know why I did it, and I'm mad that I did it, and I didn't understand how I could blow up my whole family like that. And I was in a pretty bad face. And I said, yeah. And he said, so I was at some land that I have outside of Dallas, and I was driving back one weekend. It was 2006, and he said, I decided that I was going to go to church, that I needed to go to church. I hadn't been in a really long time, but I decided that I was going to go to church. He said, so I went home, I put on a suit, because that's what you wore to church, I thought, and I walked in the doors to your church. And I said, okay. And he said, it was 2006. And I said, did you? I said, were you there for? He said, I was there for that Sunday, when Ian Cook walked on the stage and said, our pastor just had an affair. He's not the pastor anymore. 
I said, you were there for that Sunday? He said, I was. And it got quiet. And I said, okay. He said, he looked at me, he said, Charlie, I sat in the back row because I didn't feel like I could be any closer to God than that. That's the closest I could get. I said, man, I heard that Sunday, people like wept openly. He said, I wept openly. He said, <clears throat> he got on stage and this man said that our pastor had an affair. And he said, I realized in that moment that if this pastor could have an affair, maybe I wasn't as far away from God as I thought I was. And then he went on to tell me that now he believes that Jesus was perfect so we don't have to be. Look, not a good day at Crossroads. <laughs> but in the middle of this, horribleness, God still was God to somebody who needed to see the goodness of God. I called Ian Cook that afternoon and said, Ian, I just want you to know, man, I know it was the hardest day that you've had at this church, but God still used it for good in some ways that we never could have seen. Beautiful picture of how God works through failures. So the first thing we have to tell one another is that our failures don't stop God from being God. Water still came forward from that rock, even though Moses failed. Second thing I think we need to realize is if you've failed, and I have, and you have, and I will again, and you will again, whether it's in a public place or a private place, I think the first thing we want to do is pack up our bags and run far, far away. I don't think that's just you. I think that's what shame does. If you look at the very first time somebody failed God in the garden, Adam, what did he do? He packed up his bags, and he ran far, far away, as far as he could. He tried to hide from God. That's what shame does. It convinces us that God is no longer our God. It convinces us that God no longer loves us. It convinces us that we're not good enough. We never were. It convinces us that God wants nothing to do with us. But in the middle of our failure, we have to stop believing the lies that says God doesn't love us anymore. Here's what happens in the middle of our failure. God still is God, and he still is our God. Because if you follow the end of Moses' story, he lost some privilege because sin costs us something sometimes. But God was still his God. Do you know how Moses died? If you go to Numbers 35 and 36, it tells the story of the end of Moses' life. It tells the story of how he died. And in the middle of that, in, verse 30, in chapter 34, it says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in the valley in the land of Moab near Beth Por. But no one knows exactly his exact burial place to this very day. When it says he there, do you know who he is? God. Literally, Moses was buried by God himself. To the very end, God was still Moses' God, even though there was some failure. I think the first thing we feel like in the middle of those times when we fail God or our family or others is that we no longer have a relationship with. And your failures do not stop your God from being your God, from loving you, from extending grace to you, from saying, I'm not going to leave you. This is the only man in the history of the world that God buried himself. And this is nobody knows where it was, but God does. That's an amazingly intimate note that tells the story of a God who is with people in the middle of failure. So I don't want to make today a story about if you sin, God takes away your promise. I don't think that's what this is about. I think God's story of redemption is marked by the subplots of our sin throughout the course of humanity. What I think the story is about, it simply tells the story of a failure and God still being God. This story says when we fail, God still follows through with his promises. Whether it's to the people of Israel or to Moses himself, this is a story that says failure will happen, but God will not be assuaded from being God. God will work in and through our failures to show people that he is good in the middle of a really bad situation on our worst days. We can trust that God is still good. That's what this story tells me.
as God worked in and through Moses, and as God was with Moses to the very, very end. Because even on his worst day, God was with him and still loved him. It's so hard to believe when we're met with failure. And so look, failure's a tough thing, and we've been through it, and we'll go through it again. But, but as we do, I think what we have to do is remember that we don't let the story of our failure become our failure. We let the story of our failure tell the story of God who's good in the middle of it. I remember talking to people about the failures at Crossroads. They'd say, you know, Tim was an amazing teacher. Um, and the first thing they questioned was, well, what, was what he said good? Yes, it was. Was what he said true? Yes, it was. A man failed, but people grew like that podcast. It changed people's lives to see the goodness of God. That's what I want to celebrate. <laughs> that in the middle of that, look what God did. In the middle of the brokenness in my life and yours, look what God can do. It's a story of God being bigger than our failures. It's a story of God saying redemption won't stop with the failure of people. And, and so maybe what we need to do this morning is just sit, say in those moments that we've been marked by or been hurt by failure, instead of focusing on where we feel pain, which is fine, Maybe ask the question, what did God do in that? How did he shape me, mold me, grow me? And maybe as we move on, and maybe we're thinking about a place where we failed other people, we need to remember that God forgave Moses and buried him. And if God can forgive Moses, you can forgive you. It's a hard thing to do. The story of the Bible, even stories of failure, is one of grace and redemption and love because God is overly abundant, overly compassionate, not fair but gracious. And those are the stories we need to remember in the middle of failure because they're often the ones that we forget about first. And so for us as a church, what's the point of talking about failure as a church? What's the point of Numbers 20? (laughs) I think... We exist because we're a place of normal, well-meaning, messed up, flawed, broken people that point to God. I think the church is always going to be a place where failure exists, but the difference, the difference between failure outside of the church and failure with Jesus is we tell people that the point of the failure isn't that people aren't good enough, it's that God is even better. That's what happens in the church. That's what happened with Moses. That's what happened in the first century church. That's what happened with Jesus and his disciples. And hopefully, 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 that's what we get to do to everyone else. Like this guy I met with, we get to say, we're here on Sunday mornings with a bunch of flawed people because Jesus was perfect, not us. And each day we get to remind each other of that grace and that love, that compassion, that goodness. Say, this is the story we get to tell. That God works in and through failure. And he won't be stopped from following through on his promises. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful that you're bigger than the times that we mess up. I'm thankful that your love for us doesn't stop when we mess up. I'm thankful, even though it's hard, that you continue to work through our good days and our bad days towards beauty of redemption, that there is a better, that we're marching towards it. The only way we can get there is with you. So may we be a church that tells that story, that God is redeeming. And in redeeming, in the process, means there's going to be some parts and places we're not proud of. But that we follow God, because he's bigger than the parts and places we're not proud of. May we be a church 
tells the story of a good God on our bad days. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.